0: Welcome to London Lopate at Large. I'm London Lopate. In light of the fact that the cost of higher education has tripled in the past 20 years, President Biden campaigned on the promise of making college affordable to low and middle income families. Although almost all of his proposals have been facing stiff opposition from Republican legislators, free college may actually be one of the best opportunities Biden has to work across the aisle. In her new book, The Path to Free College in Pursuit of Access, Equity, and Prosperity, Michelle Miller-Adams argues that tuition-free college, if pursued strategically and in alignment with other sectors, can be a powerful agent of change. She's a senior researcher at the W.E. Upjohn Institute for Employment Research and a professor of political science at Grand Valley State University. Her book is published by Harvard Education Press and it brings Professor Miller-Adams to our show now. Welcome.
1: Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here.
0: You begin your book by noting that a lot changed during the years you were working on it, mostly due to the impact of, of the pandemic?
1: Yes, uh, actually more than that, uh, it takes a long time to write a book as people who've written books know. Uh, So I worked on this book from start to finish for a little bit over three years. And um, certainly the pace of change in the world accelerated during the pandemic. But when I started the book, there was very little likelihood that we would see any kind of national initiative around tuition-free college. And um, that really changed. It changed during the presidential primary election and through the election.
0: Now, wasn't a a national free college program proposed by the Obama administration in 2015? What happened to that?
1: Yes, it was. It was uh, not very fleshed out. It was a proposal in the 2015 State of the Union. And if you recall, at the time, uh, Congress was in Republican hands and um, the Republicans in Congress had pretty much committed to not allowing the president to achieve any uh, major policy wins. So that particular proposal uh, never went anywhere. There was of course legislation introduced, probably the best known was uh, Bernie Sanders College for All proposal Mm -hmm. in 2016, but the likelihood of Actual congressional action on the president of uh, President Obama's proposal in 2015 was very slim at the time and did not materialize.
0: So, is it particularly attractive now because it'll help workers reboot their skills for the jobs that will remain after the pandemic subsides?
1: That's absolutely one of the reasons why there's a lot of interest in free college right now. It helps both employers find um, more skilled and trained workers that they need in a changing labor market. And of course it helps people with college degrees or credentials uh, earn better wages and, and get better jobs. There's a really tight correlation between uh, level of education and success in the labor market. But um, the, the whole idea behind my book is that there are actually multiple factors that are pushing toward this, what I call a free college moment. Uh, and workforce uh, employment issues are, are really only one of those those rationales.
0: So isn't an, uh, it also one of the most powerful ways to deliver on the racial and economic justice priorities of the president's agenda? W- would Black, Latino, know, and indigenous students get a priority?
1: Um, they would not get a specific priority. It's really hard to target uh, programs like these uh, to specific racial or ethnic groups. But um, that equity rationale of opening up uh, greater opportunity and greater pathways to degrees and credentials for people of color is very central to um, really all discussions of free college, but especially resonant with the version that the president has proposed. And and the main reason is that the proposal focuses on community college and community colleges are the higher ed sector that serve Uh, that serves most lower income um, students of color, part time students, students who have children, uh, kind of your non-traditional, what we normally um, don't normally think of as the typical college goer, but increasingly is the typical college goer.
0: So he proposed uh, actually two free college plans, the one you just mentioned, two years of tuition free community college for everyone without a post secondary degree, but also a tuition-free four-year degree at public colleges and universities for students with family incomes of up to $125,000 and and tuition-free attendance at historically black colleges and universities and other minority-serving institutions. That, that's a lot. So yeah. we, we just cut it down now to community colleges?
1: Yes, um, the, the Biden campaign was actually committed, as you said, to two different free college plans. And um, I don't. I wouldn't say they're no, they're no longer committed to that more expansive plan to make four year public institutions tuition free with a family income cap at one hundred twenty five thousand dollars. I think they have just recognized that the political path to getting anything done in the current environment is very narrow, and uh, that more restricted path that focuses on the two year sector is um, politically more feasible at this point. Um, I will say that the proposal that the president made a couple of weeks ago in the American Families Plan did include sizable new investments for minority serving institutions like historically black colleges and universities where students there can get two years of their degree tuition free. So um, there's kind of some extra benefits for those minority serving institutions that are built in.
0: Is a precedent the uh, GI Bill that provided men and women of the armed forces with affordable higher education after World War II?
1: I would say it is. Uh, the The GI Bill was um, what what we can think of as a policy, a very long-lasting policy that really allowed large sectors of the American public to gain really important assets. It supported, of course, home ownership and college tuition. Uh, One of the things that is increasingly talked about about the GI Bill is that it was not as beneficial to African-American returning GIs as it was to white GIs. So there were some racial disparities that that played out in the implementation of the GI Bill. So hopefully uh, we're not replicating that. But this is a similar kind of program that seeks to very broadly, not in a narrowly targeted sense, but in a very broad sense, create uh, new opportunities, in this case for education, for human capital. So the president's American Families Plan, which had this two year community college program in it, also has, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, a proposal for a universal high quality pre-K program for three and four year olds. And the president tied those two things together to say, you know, we've been stuck at 12 or 13 years of education for a hundred years now. And of course the world has changed a lot. And really we need more like 16 or 17 years of education to get the skills we need for today's world.
0: Wouldn't any free college program be complicated by the variations across the 50 states in in how higher education is organized?
1: Yes, it's hugely complicated uh, from from an implementation standpoint, uh, partly because Uh, States have their own systems of higher education. They have different types of higher ed institutions. They invest different levels of resources in their higher ed sectors, in their community colleges, uh, have widely varying tuition costs across the 50 states. So you're really uh, talking about a program that has to be tailored to almost 50 different higher ed systems and and it's really challenging in practice to do that. Uh, It's also really important that um, the, the program, at least the way the public hears about it and understands it be kept very simple. One of the most powerful findings of 15 years of research into these free college programs that have been unfolding at the local and state level is that a simple program that is easy to understand, easy to message about, easy to talk about, is gonna have a really strong impact on bringing more students into the process. So sort of squaring that circle of this complex 50 state system, While keeping the program simple for users is is a big challenge and lots of really smart people, including a colleague of mine who's proposing an idea for doing this program through block grants to states, um, are thinking about how to actually make it
0: happen. Well, you mentioned Republican opposition in the past. So should I be surprised that what may be the nation's best known free college plan is in Tennessee, which is a very red state? How did that happen?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting lesson for the potential bipartisan uh, pull of these tuition-free college programs. The Tennessee Promise, which was introduced in 2014 and implemented in 2014, and a companion program for adults called Tennessee Reconnect, which happened a few years later, um, both both unfolded in a state with Republican leadership, uh, both at, at a time when they had a Republican governor and a very Republican legislature. So critical to what happened in Tennessee is the role of the business community. Uh, there was In, a tight
0: labor market and uh, high this was tight labor a market
1: um, growing booming um, cities with high demand for skilled and trained workers and not enough workers to go around so i think you know the tennessee promise came out of both a concern about being able to meet those workforce needs and also an understanding on the part of the people who developed this program, it was based on a, a smaller local program in the Knoxville area, that uh, about a third of, of Tennessee students were finishing high school and not going on to any kind of post-secondary education and training. And this was bad for them, those students, and also bad for the state. So it's a great example of a program that that marries this workforce concern with some really strong equity impacts to reach students who weren't gonna be on any kind of post-secondary path and making that path very simple and accessible for them.
0: And obviously it uh, has been something of a success for Tennessee Reconnect enrollees. The, the success rate measured by those who completed degrees or remained enrolled was 61% in the program's first year. That not that, that far higher than uh, other students uh, at the same institutions?
1: Yes, it's it's far higher. And um, in the world where where I work at the Upjohn Institute in, in Kalamazoo, where I work with a lot of economists, they would uh, flash some warning signs right now and say, that's an awesome success rate, but you can't compare it to previous success rates and assume that that was just the effect of the, prom, of the of the program because you're comparing apples to oranges what what the what Tennessee reconnect did is bring a new student population into higher ed now it just so happens that a lot of the students using Tennessee reconnect are low income many of them are parents many of them are single mothers uh, and they're doing really really well this suggests both that Um, making post-secondary education, community college, or these colleges of applied technology they have in Tennessee easy to access is really important in bringing in new students. And you might be attracting students who would otherwise be able to be very successful, but either didn't know about their opportunities or had concerns about affordability. And one of the interesting things- For first
0: generation.
1: First generation, lots of them, and many of them are, are, are low income. They are actually eligible for federal financial aid uh, through what are called Pell Grants. And so the Tennessee Reconnect program isn't even really paying their tuition. Federal financial aid is, but it's still really helpful to them. Um, another really interesting thing about Tennessee Reconnect is that uh, a lot of the state's employers are very involved in it, in, in looking at their own workforce and saying, oh, you know, we have these. Talented employees here, but they don't have a college degree, so their upward mobility within our firm is limited. Let's encourage them to return part time to college to get a degree and be able to stay with our company. So that's an interesting uh, development there as well.
0: Well, I haven't a dozen other states, both red and blue, also enacted a version of tuition-free higher education access over the past yes. decade? Uh, if, is, how much uh, is the federal government paying uh, in, 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 by way of Pell, uh, Pell grants? Uh, otherwise, why should it pay for a national free education system uh, program if states can achieve success on their own?
1: Uh, So That's a great question. Uh, It's very hard to actually come up with a precise number of states that have created a tuition-free college program, and that's because uh, it ranges somewhere between 12, some people say 17, some people say almost 20, um, because they they all look different and it depends a lot on what your definition of a statewide tuition-free college program is. Uh, But but that's the point. The programs are all different uh, and some have um, income requirements, some don't, some allow attendance at four year institutions, some don't. Some limit um, students receiving the scholarship to particular fields of study, like in demand occupations, others don't. and yes, uh, the federal almost all of these are are programs that that require students to use their Pell grants first. so a lot of Pell grant money is going toward these programs, but there's a lot of inequity baked in. Your, your prospect for accessing a tuition-free college program is just gonna vary based on, on where you live. And you know that's kind of a typical problem with uh, state level and local level policies. If you want to set a floor uh, for the whole nation, you really need federal leadership. Another really important part of the Biden proposal, which um, simply has to stay part of it, is that it doesn't require students to use their Pell Grants before they get the scholarship. It's actually what we in the business call a last, uh, I'm sorry, a first dollar proposal where students are able to attend community college tuition free. And then if they are eligible for federal financial aid because they are low income, they still have access to that aid that enables them to get part of the way toward affording living expenses, which are often, much more expensive than community college tuition. So, there's a a really um, positive equity impact built in to the Biden proposal in the American Families Plan and it would also standardize the benefits for everyone in the nation rather than this um, really tremendous variation we have state to state.
0: You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Michelle Miller Adams, whose latest book is The Path to Free College in Pursuit of Access, Equity and Prosperity, published by Harvard Education Press. Now, if things have changed a lot in terms of uh, how much higher education has cost uh, over the, the, just the past few years— Um, As you mentioned in your book, they've changed a lot more since I went to college in the late 50s and 60s. The only thing I had to pay for when I was a CUNY undergrad at Brooklyn College and later a graduate student at Hunter College was lab fees. Mm -hmm. And, And I understand there was a similar situation in California. So when and why did that change?
1: Uh, yes, you, you had a similar experience to my parents, who were a little older than you are. They went to the University of California in the 50s, and you, you paid a small fee. I think I think it was maybe $13. Well, I had to buy my that. books. Yes, you had to buy books. Uh, tuition at public universities and colleges in California, in New York, and in many other states was... Um, free for much of the history of these institutions. That was also true for some of the land grant institutions that where the the, the land was gifted to states by the federal government. Um, When I went to college at the University of California in the 1970s, um, fees had gone up. I paid than what is the equivalent today of around $3,000 a year. At the time, it was $238 a quarter. Very, very affordable for a middle class family to send their kids to a public university. Uh, The tuition now at University of California is more like pushing up to about $15,000 a year. And of course, it's risen a lot at CUNY as well. And that's
0: a public institution.
1: Those are public institutions, right? That's true in my home state of of Michigan as well. Yes. Um, no, no, no. Those those tuition rates at uh, private institutions are incredibly high, except that at the very most elite institutions like Harvard and the other IVs and some other very exclusive institutions, there are very generous financial aid packages for students from families earning up to very middle-class income. So um, it's, it's actually cheaper <laughs> unless you're rich <laughs> to go to an IV than it is to go to say the large regional public university that I teach at in, in West Michigan. Um, so in, in California, at least, um, the process of these relentless increases in tuition started uh, around the year I graduated from college, which was 1980. Um, They had to do with uh, what's sometimes called the Taxpayers' Revolt, um, the Proposition 13 in California, which was passed in the 70s, and the pressure that that put on the state's budget coupled with more and more people wanting to go to these institutions and qualifying to get in. And when states cut cut back their financial support for higher ed and demand for it grows, um, what happens is tuition rates rise. And there's a lot of discussion about why tuition has outpaced inflation so dramatically for decades now. And some people point to, you know, universities building fancy rec centers and climbing walls and lazy rivers. They also point to administrative bloat. What are all those deans and and assistant deans doing? But the main reason why college tuition has risen is that states have cut back on the amount of money they provide to their higher ed sector. And the institutions are left with um, no alternative, but to raise tuition.
0: Well, you mentioned that you teach in Michigan. Despite Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer's having to deal with a Republican legislature that objected to pretty much everything that she did in 2020, didn't it go along with her use of federal pandemic aid from the CARES Act to create the Futures for Frontliners program, a free community college program for workers without college degrees who'd, who'd served in frontline jobs during the pandemic and will need new skills to navigate navigate the post-crisis labor market?
1: They did, and they, they even went one better because the Futures for Frontliners program, which was introduced by Governor Whitmer last um, spring, <laughs> and and implemented for this year was paid for with federal government uh, relief Mm -hmm. money through the CARES Act. So the legislature went along with it, but they didn't have to actually spend money to make it happen. What they did do later in the year, though, is that they did provide budgetary funding for a similar program called Michigan Reconnect, which is a lot like that Tennessee Reconnect program we were talking about a few minutes ago.
0: It's $30 million. It's not a lot uh actually it's not a lot. for a state
1: no no it's not a lot at all but um it it is ho- we hope enough although uptake of this program has been been fast um this is a similar program it's for adults in the state who don't have college degrees and they can go tuition free to their in district community college. There's been tremendous demand for it. Uh, The expectation it needs to be, um, the the funding for this needs to be appropriated every year. The hope and the expectation is that it will continue to be funded given how popular it is. Uh, But it was striking simply because as you said, the Republican legislature and our democratic governor do not agree on really Mm -hmm. anything. And this was another example of how tuition-free college can draw bipartisan support. And again, very important in the legislature's support of this program in Michigan was the role of um, large business organizations, the Detroit Regional Chamber, the Michigan Chamber of Commerce. They are very much behind these opportunities.
0: and They uh, have argued that Michigan's economy hinges on increasing the supply of educated workers. So how many people have uh, applied for the program. I understand 100,000 for the uh, the uh, frontliners program.
1: Um, gosh, okay. I don't have the numbers for frontliners at the tip of my tongue. Uh, on the tip of my tongue, but the Michigan Reconnect program, which has only been open for application for I think about three months. Um, I think there have been about. 80,000 applicants for it. Um, The the application rate has been high, higher than expected. Um, We don't know. It's only been going for a couple of months. So we don't really know what the take up rate is going to be. We don't know how many of the students who apply and are approved are actually going to show up in college. But we do know, you can see if you look at a map of where these applicants come from, when you look at a map of counties in Michigan and you see that every single county in Michigan has people within it who applied for and received funding through Futures for Frontliners and Michigan Reconnect, you start to understand some of the political appeal and resonance of these programs. They touch people all over the state, it's not just blue areas that uh, have people in them who want to go to college. It's also red areas, it's rural counties, it's white counties, it's black counties. And so that's a, a really important key to understanding why these programs can draw bipartisan political support.
0: But uh, the, uh, the the main uh, uh, reason for opposing in Congress is its cost, but wouldn't it cost less than what the government recently spent to to bail out a single airline, about $5 billion over four years?
1: Yeah, we did some back of the envelope. They were really back of the envelope calculations uh, last year about what it would take if we took that futures for frontliner structure and applied it nationwide and a couple of different people who did this came up with a a cost in the neighborhood of four to six billion dollars and of course the single airline multiple single airlines got bailouts of five billion dollars just themselves Mm so um the the program that the president has proposed the as part of the american families plan if you look inside that program um he has proposed 109 billion dollars to uh, fund free tuition-free community college, which um, when you look at the size of about $4 trillion in proposed spending through those two big um, recovery plans is a very small component of that. It's also important to note that in that American Families Plan, there is that money we talked about for minority serving institutions. There's a sizable increase in the size of, a, a meaningful increase in the size of Pell Grants that federal financial aid, not all the way up to the doubling of Pell that the president promised, but a a more than a 20% increase. And also very important, there's a lot of money in there for grants to community colleges to allow them to develop programs that will support the new types of students who land there and make sure that they are going to be successful in completing degrees or credentials. So that's another really important lesson of this research that it's not enough just to make these institutions tuition free. If you're bringing first-generation, low-income college goers into that pipeline, you need to be sure you've got resources to support them to actually complete a degree or credential.
0: Support from the business community was important in what happened in Michigan. Have we been hearing from the business community in uh in regard to the uh a national plan uh
1: we have i haven't seen a lot of uh formal statements but we have seen a combination of things from the business community Uh, they like the idea of uh, national resources for getting more educated workers but they don't like the idea of paying for any of this with a corporate tax cut so I, I would not say that there's kind of a unified, enthusiastic response from the business community for that reason.
0: What about the public? Didn't a poll from October of last year reveal that 81% of respondents, including 72% of Republicans, 79% of independents, favor a federal program that provides two years of free community college?
1: Yes, and, and that, um, was that, that, was it, that-
0: Did they just ask about the two-year plan or were some other options also uh, thrown out there?
1: That particular poll asked uh, about a number of options, and it, it was a, a good poll because it didn't just say, "What do you think of free college?" To which almost everybody says, "Great idea." It was a poll that the wording said something like, "If your state is going to invest resources in, you know, one of the following activities, which do you think is the most important?" So it it forced people into ranking, and also understanding that these programs, while well, we call them free. They're not really free. They're being paid for by, by taxpayers. And they asked about uh, two-year programs. They asked about four-year programs. They asked about programs that had um, academic requirements to access them. And the, the program structure that draws the most support, and as you noted, support across the political spectrum, is um, tuition-free community college. There's been some subsequent polling in the past few months with um, favorability ratings for such a plan, not quite as high, but still very high.
0: You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. back with Michelle Miller-Adams, a senior researcher at the W.E. Upjohn Institute for Employment Research and a professor of public science at uh, Grand Valley State University, author of a number of books, including uh, one just um, uh, recently uh, called, um, what was the last one? Uh,
1: the, path, uh, the, the Path to Free College or the one before that?
0: Well, Promised Nation.
1: Yeah so yeah that was a short uh, overview of the promise movement nationally called um, Promise Nation Transforming Communities Through Place-Based Scholarships. That book is actually available online and can be downloaded for free which is ah, always
0: nice. for free that's great. <laughs> so,
1: yeah.
0: No. Uh, the the book that we're discussing of course is The Path to Free College: The Pursuit of Access, Equity and Prosperity published by Harvard Education Press. Uh, what about some of the other proposed measures, like an increase in the value of Pell Grants, also student loan debt re- relief, and, and changes in federal loan policies? Are, are they likely to pass?
1: Uh, I, I think most of those things are likely to see some action by the Biden administration. There was, you know, a bit of an outcry after the uh, announcement of the American Families Plan a couple of weeks ago because student loan debt reduction or forgiveness was not in there. The, the four-year college plan was not in there, um, and I, I heard the president's press secretary a few days ago say, "You know, the American Families Plan is not the end of Biden administration." activity on education, that um, especially the student loan debt conversation is underway and has been underway since the earliest days of the administration. Uh, And I know they're seeking ways of doing that, perhaps through executive action, um, asking for opinions on how much they could do through executive action. So uh, I think it's important to see the education provisions in the American Families Plan as a first step and as as a a nicely politically packaged uh, set of policies, packaged for for maximum political and popular support and and possible passage, it's a lot of Ps, but still, um, but not the last word on what the Biden administration hopes to do in education.
0: Uh, Perhaps in response to the pushback on some of the other things that the administration has been requesting, the infrastructure bill, uh, which, uh, Many people feel is absolutely necessary um, has uh, faced a lot of opposition in Congress.
1: Yes, uh, and I read, I think, just today that the the small Republican counteroffer is is being reconsidered and might get a little bigger. And um, I, I I think it's possible that there could be some. Compromising that does take place, but I, I think the to veer, I am a political science professor to veer into the the topic of of national politics, which is not my area of expertise beyond just being an observer. Um, the Biden administration learned a lot from the Obama administration, and I think that the um, time frame that they're willing to work toward bipartisanship, bipartisan solutions is is limited, and I. I pretty sure they're not going to spend their political capital negotiating on dramatically reduced plans rather than trying to get them enacted. Uh, so, you know, we'll see how that plays out. I'm, I'm really disappointed to see um, the Republican leadership go back to that Obama era, era um, approach of saying we're going to just basically try to block everything the Biden administration wants to do. And that's, you know, that's troubling. It doesn't suggest that um, either of these big plans are gonna be able to draw much in the way of bipartisan support.
0: In the current situation, don't many of the existing statewide programs require students to use their Pell Grants first to cover tuition, which leaves them short of resources for, for things like living expenses?
1: They absolutely do, and um, we, we call that in the scholarship world a last dollar scholarship where um, you as a student need to use whatever forms of grant aid you are awarded, and then if you have some unmet need toward tuition, The statewide promise program will cover that. Um, That of course is problematic when it comes to being able to pay for living expenses. There are very few examples of um, state or local existing tuition-free college programs that do it differently, that actually pay the scholarship first and allow students to hold on to their, Pell Grants, um, I live in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and the Kalamazoo Promise is one example like that. Um, it, it has really positive equity benefits for students. Students get their scholarship upfront to whatever higher ed institution they get into, whether it's the local community college, or we even include some vocational training programs to the University of Michigan or, or Michigan Tech or my university then if they are Pell eligible, if they're receiving federal financial aid, they're able to use that to meet some of those other expenses, living expenses, books, transportation. And the assumption is that middle-income families have some familial uh, uh, resources to fall back on to cover those things. And of course, students also still take out loans and they still work, but it, it has a more positive equity impact than, requiring students to use their Pell Grants first before they access the the Promise Scholarship.
0: Isn't another major concern the matter of degree completion?
1: Yes, that's a huge area of concern. And there's been a lot of interesting research um, carried out here in Kalamazoo uh, around around that issue of of non-completion. People sometimes call that stopouts, people who start a higher ed program and don't complete it. And um, there are a lot of reasons why a student might uh, stop out of a, a post secondary program. And one of those reasons is they might not have enough money. They might be, I mean, for many students, because of that last dollar structure, they still have to work a lot. And um, there may also be family issues, um, health issues, uh, there may be childcare childcare, um, realization that they don't quite know what they're doing in college or why they're there, uh, a lack of academic preparedness, lack of what we sometimes call college knowledge, uh, a sense of how to, I mean, college is a strange place if you've, if you've never been there and don't know anyone who went there. It's very different from, from public K through 12 education. So all of those issues, uh, they, they all require different solutions. Right, so making sure that there are childcare resources available to adult students with children. Um, uh, there's been a, a wide uh, uh, spread use of what are called emergency grants recently. Uh, which are are pots of money at um, post-secondary institutions where if a student encounters an unforeseen expense like their car breaks down uh, and that's enough to keep them from coming back, they can apply for some emergency grant funding from their institution. There's been a lot of work done by the Hope Center at Temple University led by my friend, Sarah Goldrick-Rab around uh, food and housing insecurity on campuses. And uh, a lot of colleges have created food pantries and there's a movement to make it easier for college students to access uh, SNAP or food stamp benefits. So the barriers are all different. Uh, money is, is, is one of the big barriers, but it's, it's not the only one. And what's encouraging is that this promise movement, this spread of free college programs have led um, particularly community colleges, but, but all institutions to really innovate around the question of how you promote student success, excuse me, and degree completion for what is potentially a new group of students that you haven't seen before. So there are a lot of interesting models that are are out there around using data, around mentorship, around um, what we sometimes call intrusive coaching, high touch Uh, success coaches that work with cohorts of students. Um, So there are a lot of great ideas out there, but again, they haven't really gone to scale because they're related to these local or state programs.
0: You've written extensively about the College Promise Movement, and you provide a comprehensive analysis of it in this book. Its history impacts unintended consequences, its relationship to access, affordability and workforce readiness. Uh, can you give us the short version?
1: <laughs> sure. Uh, what's so interesting about this movement and it's, it's why it's kept me interested in, in, in paying attention to it and working on it for 15 and a half years now, uh, is that this is a grassroots movement. These um, college promise programs sprang up in individual communities all around the country. There are about 200 uh, communities and community colleges that have made uh, themselves tuition-free, have provided a tuition-free path to higher education. And of course, what's challenging is the programs all look a little different from each other. So uh, you have to think hard about definitions if you're going to call it a movement, but I, my colleagues have done that and so have lots of our, our other colleagues who study this. Uh, And um, what, what happened is that these local models were adopted by other communities who said, oh, this looks like a great idea. We should try to do that here. But the program looked a little different because the community was different or the student body was different or the local higher ed institutions were different. Then in Tennessee, we saw this local program in Knoxville grow and grow and ultimately become the Tennessee promise. And then other states looked at Tennessee and said, that seems like a good idea, we should do that here. So this process actually has a, a name in political science, it's called policy diffusion. It's the way a lot of innovative policies come about. They start at the local level, they spread, they jump up to the state level, they spread. And finally the, the federal government says, hmm, maybe we should try to standardize this and make it equitably available all around the country. Um, I do wanna add that while this process of grassroots innovation and diffusion was going on, at the national level you had President Obama's proposal, um, Senator Sanders' College for All bill, and you had the growth of some national advocacy organizations, including an organization called College Promise, an organization called the Campaign for Free College Tuition, a um, student-oriented organization of advocates called RISE, and I think the combination of that bottom-up um, policy innovation and top-down advocacy really brought us um, to this moment where we're talking seriously about a national free college program.
0: Uh, aren't many of the nation's largest community colleges, including Miami-Dade College in Florida, the, the College of Southern Nevada in Las Vegas, and Lone Star College in Houston, located in areas with swing seat house districts?
1: Very possibly, I think you're probably. I would
0: think that that that, that people representing those those districts might also uh, think about how they want to vote on this.
1: Yeah, but there are other. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say it's like um, it's kind of like Pell grants. If Pell grants have a lot of by, they're they're very low and they haven't kept up with the pace of college cost increasing, college prices increasing, Um, but. They're politically appealing because there are Pell Grant recipients in every single district and um, politicians are well aware of their constituents who rely on Pell Grants. So um, I think, yes, it's important to look at at how these programs create uh, political incentives for national action.
0: Won't the industries that will expand as a result of the, the current crisis, such as healthcare, medical device and supply manufacturing, broadband installation and communication software to support remote work and education, require associate degrees or short-term certifications of the sort available at community college or technical training institutions?
1: Absolutely. A lot of what is in demand in... The workforce these days, and I think the pandemic only um, intensified these trends. Uh, they're sometimes called middle skill jobs, um, but they're they're jobs that uh, for which a high school diploma is not enough, but they don't necessarily require a four year bachelor's degree. Uh, so it, it turns out though that just getting some classes at say a community college. Uh, it may be a very important and and good thing for you as as an individual and as a citizen, but it isn't going to help you that much in the workforce. The workforce seems to uh, uh, reward the credential. so It's important to keep in mind when we talk about free community college, that uh, community colleges offer a tremendous range of these career and technical education, what we used to call vocational education, Certifications and um, credentials that that hold value in the workplace and that don't take that long to get. So all those industries that you mentioned, um, you can go to a community college, get training, get a certification or a degree, and get a good job in those expanding fields.
0: But it's not the same across the country. In some places, it's going to be manufacturing jobs that'll be considering In some cases, it'll be technology that will need. Uh, new people
1: right and and in this sense, I think that the focus on the community college sector is really important because community colleges um, good ones at least, are very connected to their local or their regional economy. I was talking to somebody yesterday who said uh, she was in Iowa, and she was saying they're very short of journalists, and so the community college in, in her community had started a training program for print and television journalists, uh, kind of a certification program. Um, In my community, we turned out to be short of um, advanced manufacturing technicians. So the uh, community college started a training program in advanced manufacturing technician training. And so community colleges um, can, they're important economic development players in their community and they should know what the in-demand occupations are, and they should be able to innovate around training for that local market. So a one-size-fits-all approach definitely does not work. As you said, um, labor markets look different from place to place. Um, The need for workers looks different from place to place. In Nashville, they need IT workers, and that's what a lot of the community colleges are training in right now.
0: And Jill Biden and Education Secretary Miguel Cardona traveled recently to Sauk Valley Community College in Dixon, Illinois, to uh, praise the virtues of the nation's community colleges as economic boosters and institutions. Uh, Why there in particular?
1: I don't know why they went there. (laughs) That's a great question. But you could go to almost any community college in any state and, and do the same thing because You know, as I said a moment ago, uh, community colleges are are great opportunities for first-generation and they're they're still a great buy in most states. New England has a little problem with community college affordability, but in most states, they're a very good buy. Uh, They're very good uh, teaching institutions. They're very good places for first-generation, low-income students who might be more at the margin in terms of academic readiness. For them to attend, but they're also important players in local and regional economic development. And sometimes, you know, they'll also do our our local community college. Uh, college also does corporate training. It has a business park. Um, they play a lot of different roles in in a local and regional economy.
0: You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest, Michelle Miller Adams, her latest book, The Path to Free College The Pursuit of Access, Equity, and Prosperity from Harvard Education Press. Uh, as you suggest, um, some students will struggle with family responsibility, health issues, the need to work full time while they're enrolled and uh, and when mer- emergencies arrive, but won't they also need help in finding the right fit in terms of post-secondary programs.
1: Yes, they do. Uh, And these transition points from high school into a post-secondary program and from a post-secondary program into a job, into the workforce, and for adults seeking to go back and get degrees through these adult promise programs, figuring out what degree to get and where, that is not an intuitive process. And so um, the word I like to use a lot is is navigation. So many of these students need help navigating based on their own interests, aptitudes, uh, and the local labor, labor market need help knowing, oh, I might be good at this and I would enjoy doing this. And to do this, I need this kind of degree. And that degree is offered at this institution. It will take me approximately this long. And here's how I apply. So that is not an intuitive process. And there are a variety of ways to accomplish that navigation support. We tend to just uh, leave it to high schools, many of which are very under-resourced in that area. Uh, In Tennessee, it's been very interesting uh, to see what they have done. Because again, this is a statewide program. They scaled up a mentorship program that had been developed uh, for this local program. It's called 10 Achieves or Tennessee Achieves. And they have over 9,000 residents, many from the business community, who serve as volunteer mentors to high school students who are at that transition point. And it's a a low touch mentoring. I think they meet once or twice or at least they used to pre-pandemic. And then they stay in touch by phone and text and email. But it's someone to go to with your questions. It's someone to remind you of deadlines. It's someone to help you figure out that path. Uh, and it's been very interesting to see Tennessee's efforts to take that up to, to a large scale. It can no. be done differently, but, but it takes resources. And you know, one of the challenges with the free college movement is we tend to focus on the free college piece, like how much will it cost to make tuition free? Um, but we don't pay enough attention to the costs of both that navigation support and student support for students once they get to college. Um, it's not rocket science. There are great models out there, but but none of those models is free. It takes it's resources.
0: What, it's what's called lack of college knowledge, uh, and it, isn't it? And, and for, especially for first-generation college goers, uh, because they'll need help in navigating the college application and financial aid process, and then uh, we'll probably need support after they enroll
1: absolutely and you know i look back i tell i tell the story at the beginning of the book of my aunt who was the first person in our extended family to go to college and my grandmother who was a russian immigrant she she didn't know from college <laughs> so my aunt found out about it through someone she knew at her work she worked for the veterans administration and um so different people find their path uh, to college um, with the help of, of, of different examples out there. It's not an intuitive thing. It's not like you grow up knowing here's how you get to college and this is what college is like and this is how you're successful. You usually need someone to show you or tell you that. And one of the exciting things about these local and state promise programs is that while providing the tuition support, they also shine a spotlight on this question of college access, how you get there, what it takes to get there. And um, I I mean, I like to think of these promise programs as lowering not just financial barriers to college, but informational barriers to college.
0: What about uh, just the focus of the student? Uh, uh, Won't it be uh, in some cases more matter of of, uh, needing a better understanding of their career interests and aptitude. I I can't tell you how many people I've spoken to in the course of my radio career who uh, talked about how they entered college thinking that they wanted to be a a math major and wound up uh, becoming historians or the like.
1: You know, this is one of the problems with, in my opinion, with the statewide programs that are are limited to um, fields of study. Virginia just announced a, a free college program, but you, you need to be um, studying a high demand occupation. And anyone who spends time in a higher ed knows students change their majors a lot. And actually STEM majors change their majors the most. And I think it's math majors who change their majors the very most. So that creates this real element of complexity in these scholarships that are awarded based on what you're studying. You know, you might give up your math major, become a history major and lose your scholarship. And, and someone has to track that and administer that. So I am really uh, against the idea of tying um, field of study to whether you get a scholarship or not college is good for you whether it's a short-term college program or a long-term college program whether you're majoring in art or you're majoring in math it's good for you in a lot of ways and it's good for society and that's um, I, I think that's one of the critical messages of my book that this idea of, of, of free higher education it's not just a goodie for the person who's getting it it's got public value to society. Having more college-educated workers, whether those are uh, short-term technical credentials or or bachelor's degrees, is good for society. It's good for states, it's good for the economy, it's good for the people who have the degrees. And so I try to make an argument throughout that this has a, a, a double benefit. It's good for the people getting the scholarship but it's also important for society to make that investment. And I think that's the right way to think about it. This is an investment. This is not just money we as a society are spending for the heck of it. We're investing in our future.
0: And is this being welcomed by the people who work and teach in the the colleges that will be involved?
1: I I think it depends on what part of the higher ed sector you're talking Mm to, Uh, a, a program that focuses on community college or on public institutions is not necessarily gonna be warmly received by uh, people who work at at private colleges or at four-year institutions. Um, And then also even within community colleges, a a program that's just gonna send up a bunch more students who may not be that well-prepared and may not have that much college knowledge to your community college without giving you resources to help them be successful is not gonna be that, that generate that much excitement. So it, I'm sorry. it
0: depends, yeah. We've run out of time. I'm so yeah. sorry, Michelle Miller Adams, the book, The Path to, Col- to Free College in Pursuit of Access, Equity and Prosperity. It's been a great pleasure talking with you. Thank you, uh, you so we much. But we've run out of time. Really and that brings us to the end of today's discussion. If you're new to our show and would like to hear more, you can access all of our past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, anywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are links to all of our past shows on our website, large.com. And if you want to write me, my email address is LeonardLopateAtWBAI.org. And this is the part of my program where I ask everyone who has the finances to do so to step up and help support WBA as we work to stay afloat during these difficult times. We're asking all of our listeners who haven't taken that step already to join your fellow listeners by making a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now to keep the unique, in-depth content we bring you on London Top 8 at Large, coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Because, you know, WBAI is the only station in New York radio that's completely lifted Sponsored. Quite frankly, we need your help to stay on the air. It's the way this crazy experiment in 100% listener sponsored radio works. And if you like the fact that there, we have no corporate overlords telling us what to do on the show, come on board. Again, the number 212 209 2950. Go online to W to give to WBAI.org. And that we hope that you'll join us again tomorrow when Jonathan Taplin will discuss his time on the road with Bob Dylan and the band and his role as a film producer working with Martin Scorsese on Mean Streets and The Last Waltz, as he describes in his new book called The Magic Years, Scenes from a Rock and Roll Life. We'll see you then.